I also want to speak to a point from our friends in Washington. Uh, Senator McConnell, who's the head of the Senate, you know we've been talking about funding for state and local governments, and it was not in the bill that the House is going to pass today. They said, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, the next bill. As soon as the Senate passed it, this current bill, Senator Mitch McConnell goes out and he says, uh, maybe the state should declare bankruptcy, okay? This is one of the really dumb ideas of all time. Uh, and, uh, you know, I said to my colleagues in Washington, I would have insisted that state and local funding was in this current bill because I don't believe they want to fund state and local governments. And not to fund state and local governments is incredibly short-sighted. They want to fund small business, fund the airlines.
Hi, this is me. This past Friday, many of us celebrated Juneteenth. I did. And yet so many others didn't and haven't. As a matter of fact, there are three states that still do not recognize it. North Dakota, South Dakota, and Hawaii. How did it feel to celebrate freedom that we're still fighting for? It felt and feels too familiar. I know that dance. I've heard those songs. It was an 18-year fight to get Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday a national holiday. Yet, it was a fight I was not willing to lose. It was a fight that many of you joined. And I thank you. But here we are again and again, and again, and again. I'm not one who make believes. I know that leaves are green. They only turn to brown. When autumn comes around, I know just what I say today's, not yesterday. And all things have an ending. But what I'd like to know is when will the day come that we let hate go? Or do I have to concede that for human beings, it's just impossible? But if life can have an ending, all things can have an ending. Systemic racism can have an ending. Police brutality can have an ending. Economic repression of black and brown people can have an ending. A movement without action is a movement standing still. To those who say they care, move more than your mouth. Move your feet to the polls and use your hands to vote. The future is in your hands. We have the power to vote and we can make a change. The youngest at 18 and the oldest at 110 can make a difference. Make your plan now to vote because right now there are forces trying to take your vote away in November. I hear voices on the left. I hear voices on the right. I've been following everything that's being said. But what I have not heard is a unanimous commitment to atone for the sins of this country. I've heard the person in the highest place of this nation say there are fine people on both sides. That sounds noncommittal to me. I have a great relationship with the blacks. Peaceful protesters called thugs. Immigrants called rapists. And from the very place that civilization began, Africa, I've heard this commander-in-chief call it an S-H-I-T hole. Wow. One day, you will show that you're sorry. Because action speaks louder than words. And the appalling silence by some is deafening. The only way any of us can show repentance is by how we live, not what we say. Lift your heart to the now, for the forever. Change those words into action. Black lives do matter. And this is not another digital viral trend moment or hashtag. It has to be the beginning of an end of all this bullish. It is our lives, literally. Yes, all lives do matter, but they only matter when black lives matter too. You know, it's a sad day when I can see better than your 2020 vision. The universe is watching us. Forget about a hundred, a thousand years from now. What will we have done by this time next year? 
I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about every single body. Let's do something. Let's make a difference. I thank you, and God bless you. continuously are coming out about how Republicans, specifically those running for re-election this year, are getting fed up with Donald Trump. They don't want anything to do with him. They would love, if possible, to distance themselves from Donald Trump, both uh, literally and, of course, metaphorically. But unfortunately, according to Republican strategists and consultants uh, in recent interviews, that's just not possible for these Republicans. They want a way out. They want a way 
to say we're not like him, we don't necessarily stand with him, we do not certainly agree with the things he has been saying and doing recently, but, but we're a little confused about how to do that. One of the things that we have seen recently is that Republicans are starting to say, yeah, um, <clears throat> we're not going to go to this convention thing that you're having, you know, the big four-year convention. Uh, it's really important. It's a big event, but yeah, we're just not going to go to it. And a couple of them, like uh, Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, have said, hey, it's because we're in the middle of a pandemic. This is not a good idea. I'm high risk. I ain't going. Then you have others like Mitt Romney, Collins, and Murkowski who say that I just can't stand the way Trump is, so you can count me out of your little convention in Jacksonville and in North Carolina. I'm not going to be at either of them. And according to the Republican consultants who recently spoke to USA Today, we can expect many more Republicans to do the same thing. That's what we're looking at right now with the Republican Party. Now, here's the thing. There's plenty of Republicans out there who are still willing to stand with Donald Trump. Uh, Lindsey Graham is a great example. He is a guy who's actually up for re-election, not doing well in his race, though, uh, getting outraced by his Democratic opponent, um, who stands by the president relentlessly. You know, when Donald Trump had his meltdown the other day about how fast he plays golf, but the media doesn't give him credit for that, Lindsey Graham chimed in and said, yeah, he's like the fastest golfer ever. Um, <laughs> he does tons of business on the golf course. Uh, he's just the greatest guy ever made. But others, notably silent, right? We are seeing more and more Republicans simply not saying a thing about Donald Trump, at least not the ones who are up for re-election. You have your obvious hacks that you see on social media, right? You know, your, your right-wing celebrities, your right-wing grifters like your Candace Owens, your Charlie Kirks and Dave Rubens and even your Tim Pools at this point. Those folks, yeah, they're going to go out there and they're going to defend the president. They're going to stand by anything he says. Uh, less out of loyalty to him, I think more out of just hatred towards uh, the left. But nevertheless, they're going to stand by him. But they don't matter. And I know that probably hurts their feelings to hear, but believe it or not, folks, y'all don't matter at all in the world of electoral politics for Republican politicians. You do a good job of helping to push policies, but at the end of the day, you have no input whatsoever on the decision-making on who gets to run what race, and you really don't have much effect on the outcome of any of those races either. Sorry, but that's the sad reality that we all live in. But the politicians themselves, where are they? Where are those voices out there defending the president, saying that he made the right choice here, he made the right choice there, he's doing things that we like, we stand by his decision in the early days of these protests, we saw those, but those have kind of shut up a little bit, haven't they? They kind of disappeared after about a month, and they've been gone for about a month at this point. They're not out there, they're not defending him, one, because they know he's wrong, but two, because they know that doing so publicly at this point is going to hurt them. The public is not with the president. They're not with him on the issue of the protests, which he thinks they are. They're not with him on the economy. They're not with him on the pandemic. They are not with him on foreign policy or the environment or trade or health care. They're not with him on any issue right now. And Republicans know that if they latch their wagons to him then the public's going to abandon them as well. We begin tonight with what a self-proclaimed wartime president looks like, with more than 137,000 American lives lost in the war. And we should point out what you're about to see is how he wants to look. It's no accident. We're not about to show you some kind of unguarded, unflattering behind-the-scenes moment. No, this is a picture the president of the United States posed for and put out on his Instagram page. It's the image he chooses to project to the families and the friends and the children and neighbors of 137,000 of his fellow Americans. This is our wartime president today. And while there's plenty more that could be said about the idiotic way it came to be, the pettiness behind it or the political calculations, if any, that went into it, the truth is any attempt to explain or contextualize this grotesque photo only adds the insult. So we'll let it speak for itself. 
Well, let it be exactly what it is, a picture of the most powerful man on earth facing the most serious challenge on earth right now in the Oval Office behind the famed Resolute desk and a can of beans, plus a few other items from aisle nine. Thumbs up, orange, grinning like he's just won a prize. 137,000 Americans dead, and this is our self-proclaimed wartime president's answer to it. He hasn't been to a coronavirus task force meeting since April, we're told. He's been doing everything he can to undermine our nation's scientists. He ignored for crucial weeks the spread of this virus. He's lied about it, thinks it just will magically disappear. And given the death toll and the spread of the virus, you might think he might be spending every waking moment trying to combat it, talking to victims' families, rallying Americans to be patriotic by wearing a mask, washing their hands, protecting their neighbors. But no, this is what he wants the world to see the infected, the recovering, the newly grieving. Anyone on Instagram, the more clicks for this president, the better. So we want to uh, just hold up this picture. We want to give the president what he is so obviously craving. We're going to keep this ridiculous picture up while we tell you about what is happening on his watch, starting with this assessment today from the nation's top infectious disease specialist and senior member of his own task force, the one he's been undermining, that is when he's not posing with canned beans. The problem is, since we started off our baseline so high, as we tried to open up, and what we saw was it went from 20,000 cases a day to 30, 40, 50, and now we're hanging around 60,000. That's untenable. We've got to turn that around. In fact, as we left you last night, new data came in from the Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health showing another 67,417 new cases. That's the most ever in a single day anywhere on Earth, the majority of whom will develop symptoms. Many will be hospitalized in just a matter of weeks. By current mortality estimates, of those 67,000 people, about 2,700 will die. Nationwide, new cases are now rising in 38 out of 50 states. They're holding steady in nine and dropping in just three, Maine, Delaware, and Arizona. For Arizona, though, which has been hit so hard lately, this may not be a sign the worst is over. A record number of people are hospitalized, and as Dr. Quinn Snyder from Mesa, Arizona, told us last night, there's no room left for more. Patients, he said, are being transported elsewhere or even out of state because ICUs are simply out of capacity. Also, as you might imagine, deaths are trending upward and positivity rates remain above 20 percent. That is when people can get tested, which many still can't. For the first time in the outbreak, Houston's death toll is in double digits for a single day, and hospitals there are full. Miami-Dade County today reported is now out of ICU beds. Dr. Aileen Marty, who's been on the program several times recently, said today, quote, on a scale of one to 10, we're at a maximum capacity, we're at maximum urgency. We need to turn this thing around right now. Florida's governor has still not even issued a statewide mask mandate. Alabama's Republican governor today did. Oklahoma's governor, who attended the president's rally in Tulsa, he has now tested positive. Walmart, the nation's largest retailer, is now requiring all customers to wear face coverings in their store. The president, though, having shown that he can wear a mask, once again refused to during his trip to Atlanta today. He did not wear a mask, did not mention the lives lost, did not mention the record case count or how to get those numbers down. But he did once again say that he thinks there are 21 different names for what he calls the China, China virus, because apparently that line sounds funny to him, despite the fact that comments like that stoke racist sentiment against Asian Americans. He also blamed others for the campaign he's been heading lately, not against the virus, but the man fighting it, Dr. Fauci. He threw his, his trade advisor, Peter Navarro, under the bus after Navarro, who has zero knowledge of viruses or epidemics, but likes to talk about how he went to Harvard and understands science because, uh, because he's a social scientist, wrote an op-ed criticizing the nation's foremost expert in the field. We're all on the same team, including Dr. Fauci. I have a very good relationship with Dr. Fauci. Well, that's Peter Navarro, but I have a very good relationship with Dr. Fauci. The president doesn't even have the courage to publicly attack Dr. Fauci. That's how weak he is. He has his hangers on do it, like Peter Navarro, and he winks at them and nods approval. But publicly, when the cameras are rolling, everything's great with Fauci. But he's undercutting him every step of the way. They don't allow Fauci on, on our town halls, on a lot of television programs anymore. They don't want you to see him. They send him to other meetings when the few times the virus task force is holding a, an actual briefing, at least the last time they did. That's our wartime president, the guy sitting behind his desk with cans of beans. And that's what the president is doing in addition to endorsing cans of, cans of beans with 137,000 Americans dead and many more dying. He's trying to do damage control and the damage that he himself has done. 
In a new Quinnipiac poll, only 30% of people surveyed said they trust the information the president is providing on the outbreak. Frankly, it's startling that it's that high. 67% said they distrust it. For Dr. Fauci, that figure is reversed. He's trusted by a margin of 65 to 26% which may explain why he's been marginalized, kept off national television. It may explain why the president has re retweeted fire Fauci memes about him and undercut him in public. According to reporting in the Los Angeles Times, the president himself approved of that Peter Navarro op-ed, the paper citing one administration official who said, quote, not only was he authorized by Trump, he was encouraged. That's the way this president works. Publicly denies it, privately he encourages. But the president apparently did not have the guts to admit it publicly, and we shouldn't be surprised by that or to tell the public why he disagreed with Dr. Fauci. The man who claims to know more about the military than the nation's top generals apparently has nothing to say now, but Fauci thankfully does. They are really, I think, taken aback by what a big mistake that was. And I think if you talk to reasonable people in the White House, they realize that was a major mistake on their part because it doesn't do anything but reflect poorly on them. And, and I don't think that that was their intention. I don't know. I cannot figure out in my wildest dreams why they would want to do that. But, I mean, I think they realize now that that was not a prudent thing to do because it's only reflecting negatively on them. I can't explain Peter Navarro. He's in a world by himself, so I don't even want to go there. The fact is, though, Dr. Fauci's wrong. He's not in a world by himself. He works in the White House. He works for the most powerful man in the country, and there's a reason for that. There's a reason he is in the White House, because the president wants him there. So Dr. Fauci is trying to ascribe good motives to a lot of folks in the White House who maybe are talking to him and privately are saying, gosh, that was a really terrible thing. We don't know why he would do that. We feel terrible about it. But they won't say that to the president's face. They'll say that to, to Fauci privately. They won't say that publicly. They don't have the guts either. And that's why they work for the commander in chief, because he has no guts either. Whatever the, whatever the answer, the administration today put out this picture of Dr. Fauci at today's task force meeting. They're following the lead of the president. Publicly, again, they pretend everything is fine. So here they put out very intentionally a picture of him talking with Vice President Pence. But again, behind his back, they try to destroy the man who has more credibility than any of them. None of this would matter, wouldn't amount to a hill of beans, but this is our president. And people are dying, and people are sick, and more will die, and more will get sick. And our economy is in shambles. We're in a public health battle for our lives and our futures. And the president is sitting there behind the resolute desk, resolutely clutching at beans. Joining us now, CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta, also William Hazeltine, former Harvard researcher and recent author of A Family Guide to COVID.
keep the job you have or gain a job if you don't have one? Are you pleased with the ability of young people to buy a home, of the elderly to live their remaining years in happiness, of our youngsters to take pride in the world we have built for them? Are you convinced that we have earned the respect of the world and our allies? Let us resolve tonight that young Americans will always find a city of hope in a country that is free. And let us resolve they will say of our day and of our generation that we did keep faith with our God, that we did act worthy of ourselves, that we did protect and Pass on lovingly that shining city on a hill. Oh, wow. That's the latest line of attack from a group called Republican Voters Against Trump. One of the many, there are now many GOP groups working actively to stop Donald Trump's reelection effort. This video blending former President Ronald Reagan's words from one of his best known speeches with news footage, real footage of Donald Trump's America today trying to make the case for how far the party has fallen, and I would add the country has fallen under Trump, asking, has your party left you? Another trend out there, Republican-leaning voters who held their noses for Trump in 16, but won't this time. From today's New York Times, quote, an emerging group of voters who dislike both major party presidential nominees in 2016, but who are now so disillusioned with President Trump and sufficiently comfortable with Mr. Biden that they are increasingly willing to support the Democrat. Michael Steele, Steve Schmidt, Alexi McCammon, no three better people to have this conversation with. Steve Schmidt, start with you. Why are Republicans so... Um, uh, on their game to try to make sure, is it guilt? Is it, is it our, our feeling that we were somehow complicit in bringing the party and the country to this place? I think Republicans are part of a coalition that wants to turn Donald Trump out of office because he's the worst president in the history of the country. He's a profound threat to the security of the country. And we have absolutely zero chance. And by zero chance, I mean zero, Z-E-R-O, zero chance of moving past this with Donald Trump in that job. He is completely unfit for it. He is unfit mentally. He is unfit physically. He is unfit intellectually. He is a conspiracy theorist who has the blood of over 100,000 Americans on his hands because of the incompetence and the ineptitude in the response to the coronavirus. The leading math and science country in the world is the epicenter of this, and there's one reason, and that's presidential incompetence. Full stop. Secondly, when you look at the Russian bounties, when you look at his disloyalty and treachery towards the men and women that he's sworn to command as commander-in-chief, the men and women who come from every race and creed, every corner of the country, the American people should not tolerate this. He has assaulted our institutions. He has desecrated his office. He has assailed the constitutional order. He has weakened the checks and balances. He has been a force for illiberalism. We see the rescission of democracy all over the globe. We see his assaults on our allies and the weakening of the American position. And so four years in, we stand at a moment of abject American weakness and tragedy that can't end until he's gone. And that's why there's so many groups out there telling the truth on Donald Trump, trying to convince these Republican voters to say, you're fired. Michael Steele, uh, anything on your mind, but, but, but pick up this thread for me too. I think on top of it, as Lindsey Graham once said, there is no more decent man than Joe Biden. And that's the problem for Donald Trump. He ain't Hillary. Um, and the way the country felt about Hillary Clinton is 180 degrees away from way how they felt for, uh, how they feel for Joe Biden. Uh, they, they have concluded and are continuing to conclude, which is what is reflected in a lot of the polling. And as Steve and I will tell you, we're not, you know, advocating national polling at this point because it's all over the map and we, you know, it's not the most reliable thing at times. But there is a trend line that's emerging in the behavior of the population of voters out there, as, as you just reflected and as Steve spoke to, about where voters are moving, where Republican voters are moving, that center-left, center-right, independent voter who may have stood with Donald Trump in 2016 is firmly and beginning to strongly move away from, uh, away from him. 
So this now becomes a political problem for the president, which is why you have the, the Mount Rushmore moments, why you have uh, the, the sort mm. of dark, you know, authoritarian speeches uh, that he's been giving uh, to bring that base back to him. But he's losing a lot of ground. And that's the difficulty he has to face because Joe Biden is not the opponent that he had uh, four years ago. You know, Alexi, I'm confounded by the conduct of Trump and his allies because their mission is just what Michael Steele and, and Steve described, to, to, to reassemble their coalition, which was barely adequate for him to win in 16. But you don't re, to reassemble that coalition, you need pro-life women who care about judges. You need people who... Um, I, I, and I, again, I don't, I don't even know where you find them at this point because the, the debasement of the office is in front of everybody's face. But you don't get back, you don't get the coalition back in place by attacking Tammy Duckworth, who um, Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump have been going after on Twitter and on Tucker Carlson's show for the last two days. You don't get them by standing in front of Mount Rushmore and calling peaceful protesters fascists. I mean, the language suggests that that at least in some corner of his brain, even Trump knows it's a long shot this time. I mean, Nicole, I feel like you and I have talked about this in the last few weeks alone, how President Trump's stance on some of these major issues really overtaking the country is increasingly at odds with how the public feels and how Americans at large feel. That's, you know, to say with the protests, with the coronavirus and wearing masks, with everything that you just mentioned. And, you know, we're seeing how this is affecting his reelection efforts. To your point, I think that the president is relying on an increasingly small base of, you know, supporters who loved who he was in 2016 and continue to support him no matter what. But there are a lot of people who are viewing this, and I'm hearing this in focus groups, and we're seeing this in polling, similar to 2016, in that they kind of view this in a way as a choice between, some people say, the lesser of two evils, but they think that Joe mm. Biden is the lesser of two evils, so to speak, not in the way that they saw Hillary Clinton in 2016. I think to Michael Steele's point, that can't be overstated enough. Joe Biden not being Hillary Clinton is a good thing for Joe Biden. And Donald Trump being who Donald Trump is has been a good thing for Joe Biden, who has otherwise been able to run a campaign in this weird new virtual reality exactly as he sees fit without being dragged into the campaign trail or dragged into these rhetorical arguments by President Trump. And I think that's what's really working for Biden and hurting President Trump. And we also see that, Nicole, in the way that President Trump is struggling to define Joe Biden. Crooked Hillary Clinton, corrupt Hillary Clinton, was a really good way to label her because of the way that people had... Trump and businesses demanded America reopen to revive the economy. The people of our country should think of themselves as warriors. Our country has to open. But we've reopened too soon before COVID-19 is under control. So we're needing to close or partly close again, which will prolong the economic downturn and wreak even more havoc on millions of Americans' livelihoods. It never should have been a contest between public health and the economy anyway. The economy has always depended on getting public health right, and we still haven't. Trump has downplayed the risks. He got in the way of governors trying to help people keep safe. And now all of us are paying the price. Brace yourself. The wave of evictions and foreclosures in the next two months will be unlike anything America has experienced since the Great Depression. And unless Congress extends extra unemployment benefits beyond July 31st, we're also going to have unparalleled hunger. Eviction protections for federally subsidized properties run out at the end of July. In some states that enacted their own moratoria on evictions, renter protections are already running out. One study estimates that 19 to 23 million renters, or one in five people who live in renter households, are at risk of eviction by September 30th. The people most likely to be evicted are black and Latinx people, single mothers, people with disabilities, formerly incarcerated people and undocumented people. This is systemic racism playing out in real time. Meanwhile, delinquency rates on mortgages have more than doubled since March. Unemployment itself is different than what we saw back in March and April. Today's layoffs are permanent, the result of businesses throwing in the towel or permanently slimming down. In the public sector, loss of state tax revenue 
is running up against state constitutions that bar deficits. This is putting vital public services on the chopping block. Schools, childcare, supplemental nutrition, mental health services, low-income housing, health care, at a time when the public needs them more than ever. In April and May alone, states and localities furloughed or laid off some one and a half million workers, about twice as many as in the entire aftermath of the Great Recession a decade ago. These cuts will be just the tip of the iceberg if the federal government doesn't provide more fiscal aid for states and localities. Let me remind you, expanded unemployment benefits are set to expire by July 31st, leaving at least 21 million unemployed Americans with a 60% income reduction and no stimulus check to fall back on. To make matters worse, over 16.2 million households have lost employer-provided health insurance already. Sherry was abruptly laid off from her auto sales job in April. Her insurance? It was terminated the day I was terminated. The Census Household Pulse Survey shows large losses in income in coming months, along with high food and housing insecurity. So what is Trump's and Mitch McConnell's response to this looming catastrophe? Do nothing. Don't extend supplemental unemployment benefits beyond July 31st, when they're due to expire. Don't help states and cities. Reject the HEROES Act, passed by the House of Representatives to keep struggling families afloat and the economy from going into a tailspin. Trump has even asked the Supreme Court to strike down the Affordable Care Act. If the court agrees, 23 million additional Americans will lose their health insurance and the richest one-tenth of one percent of households with annual incomes of over three million dollars will receive tax cuts averaging almost two hundred thousand dollars per year. This is lunacy. The priority must be getting control over this pandemic and helping Americans survive it physically and financially. Extra unemployment benefits must be extended. The HEROES Act must be signed into law. Moratoriums on evictions and foreclosures must be extended. If it's necessary to go back to sheltering in place to contain this pandemic, we must be willing to do so. This shouldn't be controversial. It's the bare minimum of what our government must do to prevent an even worse economic and human catastrophe. Anything less is indefensible. commandments was deliberately and artificially inflated to get it up to 10. It's a padded list. Here's what they did. About 5,000 years ago, a bunch of religious and political hustlers got together to try to figure out how to control people, how to keep them in line. They knew people were basically stupid and would believe anything they were told, so they announced that God had given them some commandments. Up on a mountain, when no one was around, God had given them the Ten Commandments. But let me ask you this. When they were sitting around making this shit up, why did they pick ten? Why ten? Why not nine or eleven? I'll tell you why. Because ten sounds official. Ten sounds important. They knew if it was eleven, people wouldn't take it seriously. Say, what, are you kidding me? The Eleven Commandments? Get the fuck out of here. But ten... Ten sounds important. Ten is the basis for the decimal system. It's a decade. It's a psychologically satisfying number. The top ten, the ten most wanted, the ten best dressed. So having ten commandments was really a marketing decision. And to me, it's clearly a bullshit list. It's a political document artificially inflated to sell better. I'm going to show you how you could reduce the number of commandments and come up with a list that's a little more workable and logical. We're going to start with the first three, and I'll use the Roman Catholic version because those are the ones I was taught as a little boy. 
I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt keep holy the Sabbath. Right off the bat, the first three, pure bullshit. <laughs> Sabbath, Sabbath day, Lord's name, strange gods. Spooky language. <laughs> Spooky language. Designed to scare and control primitive people. In no way does superstitious nonsense like this apply to the lives of intelligent, civilized humans in the 21st century. You throw out the first three commandments, whoosh, you're down to seven. Next, honor thy father and mother. Obedience, respect for authority. Just another name for controlling people. The truth is, obedience and respect should not be automatic. They should be earned. They should be based on the parent's performance. Parent's performance. Right? Some, some parents deserve respect. Most of them don't. Period. You're down to six. Now, in the interest of logic, something religion is very uncomfortable with, we're going to jump around the list a little bit. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Stealing and lying. Well, actually, these two both prohibit the same kind of behavior. Dishonesty, stealing, and lying. So you don't need two of them. Instead, you combine them and you call it, thou shalt not be dishonest. And suddenly, you're down to five. And as long as we're combining, I have two others that belong together. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Once again, these two prohibit the same kind of behavior, in this case, marital infidelity. The difference is coveting takes place in the mind, and I don't think you should outlaw fantasizing about someone else's wife. Otherwise, what's a guy going to think about when he's waxing his carrot? <laughs> but, but marital fidelity is a good idea, so we're going to keep the idea and call this one, Thou shalt not be unfaithful. And suddenly, we're down to four. But when you think about it, honesty and fidelity are really part of the same overall value. So in truth, you could combine the two honesty commandments with the two fidelity commandments and give them simpler language, positive language instead of negative, and call the whole thing, thou shalt always be honest and faithful, and we're down to three. Thou shalt, thou shalt, they're going away, they're going away fast. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. This one is just plain fucking stupid. <laughs> Coveting your neighbor's goods is what keeps the economy going. <laughs> all right? Your neighbor gets a vibrator that plays Oh Come All Ye Faithful. <laughs> you want to get one too. Coveting creates jobs. Leave it alone. You throw out coveting and you're down to two now. The big honesty and fidelity commandment. And the one we haven't talked about yet. Thou shalt not kill. Murder. The fifth commandment. But when you think about it. <laughs> when you think about it. Religion has never really had a big problem with murder. Not really. More people have been killed in the name of God than for any other reason. All you have to do. Yeah. All you have to do is look at Northern Ireland, the Middle East, Kashmir, the Inquisition, the Crusades, and the World Trade Center to see how seriously the religious folks take thou shalt not kill. The more devout they are, the more they see murder as being negotiable. It's negotiable. You know? It depends. It depends. It depends on who's doing the killing and who's getting killed. So, with all of this in mind, I leave you with my revised list of the two commandments. <laughs> Thou shalt always be honest and faithful to the provider of thy nookie. <laughs> and thou shalt try real hard not to kill anyone. Unless, of course, they pray to a different invisible man from the one you pray to. <laughs> two is all you need. Moses could have carried him down the hill in his fucking pocket. And if they had a list like that, I wouldn't mind those folks in Alabama putting it up on the courthouse wall. As long as they included one additional commandment, thou shalt keep thy religion to thyself. Department. In the bullshit department, a businessman can't hold a candle to a clergyman. Because I've got to tell you the truth, folks. I've got to tell you the truth. When it comes to bullshit, big time, major league bullshit, you have to stand in awe. 
in awe of the all-time champion of false promises and exaggerated claims, religion. No contest. No contest. Religion. Religion easily has the greatest bullshit story ever told. Think about it. Religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day. And the invisible man has a special list of ten things he does not want you to do. And if you do any of these ten things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever till the end of time. But he loves you. He loves you. He loves you and he needs money. He always needs money. He's all-powerful, all-perfect, all-knowing, and all-wise. Somehow, just can't handle money. Religion takes in billions of dollars, they pay no taxes, and they always need a little more. Now, you talk about a good bullshit story. Holy shit.